and my dad had to haul him down from the chair and take him out of the arena. Howdy. You're listening to Come and Take It, a talk show about Texas by Texans, where three friends born and raised in the Lone Star State share their views on the history, culture, and just what it means to be Texan. And we're your hosts, Mike Zolkowski. I'm Sean McIver. Scott Ulfstrom. And today's topic is wrestling, the long Texas tradition of it. But before we start, I want to know, Sean, what's your favorite Chuck Norris movie? The Octagon. Delta Force. And I love Lone Wolf McQuaid. But today, we're talking about Texas wrestling. Now, we all know that Texas has a long tradition of big, colorful, over-the-top characters in its history. And nowhere is that more evident than in this particular brand of professional wrestling that comes out of Texas. Today, we're going to talk about our memories of these tough guys, wild men, and heroes. The legends of Texas wrestling. Now, when I think of wrestling, um, it's mostly from my childhood, obviously. Um, Growing up in the Houston area, we would tune in to our cartoons on Saturday mornings. And then after the cartoons, uh, Channel 39 would program wrestling. So I grew up watching the WCW and such heroes as the Von Erich family, Carrie, Mike, all the all the brothers, and their nemeses like uh, King Kong Bundy, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And that's really all what I remember. And in fact, I mentioned uh, just to some guys at work today. I said, you know, we've been doing some reading on wrestling in Texas. And I said, did y'all watch wrestling when you were kids? And the very first thing that they said was Von Erich. We didn't have Texas uh, wrestling, WCCW wrestling on our TV and growing up near Wichita Falls. But I do remember the very first memory of wrestling that I actually have is in about 1982. Carrie Von Erich was wrestling King Kong Bundy. And there was flyers all over the towns that we lived in. And he was wrestling him at the only high school gym, which is where my mom taught. And I remember seeing those flyers and... I, I guess I knew what wrestling was. I knew who Kerry Von Erich was, so I, I assume I'd seen him before, but this is my first memory. Then my other early memories was Saturday Night Main Event for WWF. We had WWF television. The Saturday Night Main Event, the very first one that I remember was Hulk Hogan and the Junkyard Dog versus the Funk Brothers, Terry and Hoss Funk, uh, Dory Funk Jr. Well, for me, Texas wrestling evokes a, a, a couple of good memories. The first is... My great-grandmother was a huge fan of wrestling, and every Wednesday night, she would have my great-aunt drive her to Victoria, and they would watch the wrestling matches, and she insisted upon sitting right in the front row. The you know, This was in the late mid to late 50s through the early 60s. There was one particular wrestler, a fellow by the name of Wild Bill Curry, quite an outrageous character. You have to look up his picture. He was one of the wild men, one of the tough guys. He was a heavy, bad guy. But uh, he would see my great-grandmother sitting there every week, and he would point her and say, that's my mama. And I, I think part of his power came from his eyebrows, because they were just massively huge, bushy eyebrows. He, he was really one of the scariest uh, wrestlers of his day. So my aunt and my mom remember going to my great-grandmother's house, and she would, she would watch the wrestling. She would stamp her feet. But one Wednesday night, they were at the wrestling matches, and the match turned from being a work to being a shoot, which is where the two wrestlers are actually very physically going at it for real. Curry got picked up, and then he was thrown into the audience right on top of my great-grandmother and my great-aunt. Uh, they were hurt a little bit, and uh, they quit going to the, to the matches after that point. 
But then in the 70s, uh, when I was a very young child, I got to go to an exhibition match of the San Antonio Wrestling. And I got to see people like Chief Wahoo McDaniel and Scott Casey and all of those San Antonio wrestlers uh, live. And so seeing that when you're four years old to see these kind of, you know, impressive people with these mega 70s mustaches going at it in, a, on the, in the ring, it's fantastic. And that was back when professional wrestlers just looked like guys. Strapping guys. Strapping guys. Except Bull Curry. <laughs> he does not look like any guy you've ever seen. He looks a bit like an animal. The early history of wrestling is in Texas is a little bit difficult to determine. There's a lot of conflicting information out there. We do know that there was a at least uh, one very early world championship match. Frank Gotch, the original world champion, did defend his belt in Galveston in 1908. Uh, uh, there was a number of different world championship matches, the various world championships floating around throughout Texas in the 19-teens, 20s, and 30s, different people promoted. But by the 1940s, uh, the booking offices, and these are, these are offices that, that promote shows in an area, and they, they employ wrestlers in, in, in a particular area. The areas are called territories by that point. Uh, booking offices in Houston, Dallas, and Amarillo had mostly divided up the state. Uh, and we're sharing talent with each other, uh, especially the Houston and Dallas promotions. In 1949, 48-49, uh, this was the time when the National Wrestling Alliance was formed. And this is a collective of wrestling promoters who formed to protect their territories uh, from competition and to recognize a single world champion and then to share talent among themselves. Each of these offices, the Dallas, Houston, and, and Amarillo offices, they were kind of known for different specialties and unique styles. But they did, like I said, they did share talent a lot, work together. People uh, floated between the different territories. Amarillo in West Texas uh, was run by a, a wrestler named Dory Funk. Uh, he, he took over by the mid-50s. Uh, he was the top star, and he took over promoting and owning the territory. It was known for a real tough physical style because he was a tough physical guy uh, and technical wrestling. His boys, Dory Jr. and Terry, would both eventually become NWA world champions in the 1960s and 70s. And they were the only brothers to do that. The promotion actually folded in the early 80s. Uh, Dory, Dory Sr. died in 1973, uh, but it folded in the early 80s as the WWF rose to national prominence. Terry was a, Terry was a major star on television throughout the late, through the late 1990s. And he actually still wrestles today. He's in his 60s. This was the territory, actually, that was promoted in, in my dad, where he grew up in West Texas, near Odessa. And uh, my dad tells told a story. Uh, when he was in college, he took his, his great-grandfather to a wrestling match. Uh, one time when he was going to Odessa Community College, he took his, his great-grandfather to a wrestling match in Odessa. And when he came to get him uh, after his class, his great-grandfather was who was the large man, he was over 300 pounds, he was standing on top of a chair waving his pocket knife at a wrestler because he'd gotten into an altercation with the wrestler. And my dad had to haul him down from the chair and take him out of the arena. Wow. Houston wrestling, the Houston Territory, uh, ran from the 1920s uh, until 1988, and it was on TV on Channel 39, as I mentioned earlier, since uh, the 1940s. The original promoter uh, was named Morris Siegel, who was a TV host and announcer. Former wrestler Paul Bosch took over uh, after Siegel's death in 1966. Major shows and TV tapings were held in the Sam Houston Coliseum. They were not affiliated with the NWA, but had been known for bringing in star wrestlers, including all the world champions. 
behind the scenes, Bosch had a reputation for being honest and for paying well, making him popular with the wrestlers. Uh, he sold promotion, his promotion and TV spot in 1987 to Vince McMahon, who owned the WWF, and through others he uh, tried to promote out of Houston, uh, but the territory area and wrestling was over at that point. All right, let's talk about my hometown, San Antonio. San Antonio was actually booked out of the Houston office until the mid-1950s. At that point, they split off from Siegel and became part of the Dallas promotion. You almost need a map to keep track of all of these things. Bull Curry was the top star in the area in the 1950s and early 60s, and this is the territory that would have promoted the shows that my great-grandmother loved so much. Now, in 1978... A San Antonio wrestler named Joe Blanchard split from Dallas and started the Southwest Championship Wrestling, with these shows running in the Junction and then in Hemisphere Arena in San Antonio. He focused on smaller wrestlers and making his son Tully a major star. They were able to get on the USA Network, but in 1983, due to the high cost, they got dropped. There was also a really bloody match involving Tully uh, that got them in hot water with the USA uh, network execs. So that TV spot was given to Vince McMahon's WWF, and that became the first major national venue for promotion and became the force that really drove 80s and 90s wrestling. The San Antonio promotion folded in 1985. And we know that spot today is Monday Night Raw. Most people think of Texas wrestling, they're generally thinking about the Dallas promotion and the Von Eric family. Dallas Promotion was based out of the legendary Dallas Sportatorium, an arena located just south of downtown Dallas, which was known as well for being part of the early rock and roll history. It hosted the Big D Jamboree that broadcast on the local TV and the CBS radio network. People like Elvis Presley, Johnny Cash, Jerry Lewis, Jerry Lee Lewis. Jerry Lee Lewis. <laughs> Hank Williams Sr. Right. It picked up a lot of people early in their careers. Right. Yeah, but... How can you pick a better name for a wrestling venue than the Sportatorium? The Saturday, Saturday at the Sportatorium. In the 1950s, the wrestling was very popular on TV uh, at the Sportatorium. Uh, in fact, at one point, Channel 4 and Channel 5 both aired live broadcasts from each end of the arena at the same time. You know, one had the north end and one had the south end, and it was live at the same time. It's awesome. In the early 1960s, a former SMU star, Jack Adkisson, uh, who wrestled as a Nazi bad guy, bad guy, Fritz von Erich, was the major star of the promotion. And he actually bought it out from longtime promoter Ed McLemore. Fritz became the good guy and the top star, and he brought the promotion into the NWA as Ed McLemore had been on the outs with the NWA for a couple of years. In the late 1970s, Fritz began building up his three sons, David, Kevin, and Kerry, as new stars of the territory, and making them as indestructible, all-American good guy heroes. Yeah. In fact, by 1982, the boys were the most popular celebrities in Dallas, uh, bigger than the Dallas Cowboys. They had feuds with uh, other wrestlers, Gary Hart and Skandor Akbar's stables of monsters like Great Kabuki and King Kong Bundy, as well as the fabulous Freebirds. The television show World Class Championship Wrestling was groundbreaking for its time, using popular music for entrances and video pieces for the wrestlers. Tapings from the Sportatorium aired on KTVT Channel 11 and was syndicated outside of Texas as far away as Japan, England, and Israel. In 1982, uh, middle son David had been was being groomed to be the next NWA champion. But in 1984, sadly, he was found dead in his hotel room in Japan on a tour there. The official cause was acute gastroenteritis, which is an inflammation of the intestine, but almost immediately among insiders, drugs were rumored. 
All three boys had uh, a very pretty strong backstage reputations as real hard partiers. At David's funeral in Dallas, the thousands of people, uh, 30,000 people, I believe, attended this funeral. Months later, 50,000 people showed up at Texas Stadium for a show to watch Kerry Von Erich defeat Ric Flair for the NWA World Championship in memory of his brother. He only held the belt for 18 days, and this was really the height of the Von Erich success. Uh, drug and alcohol problems plagued all of the sons. Younger brothers Mike and Chris never really had the success of the older brothers uh, or the size, and they each committed suicide in 1987 and 1991, respectively. Uh, Fritz and the World Class Championship Wrestling tried to compete with the WWF, WWF as a national promotion into the late 80s, but bad business decisions and ongoing tragedy affecting Von Erichs and other wrestlers in the territory diminished the business until Fritz sold the promotion in 1990 to the Memphis Territory. Kerry would struggle with addiction as well as injury. He lost a foot in a motorcycle accident in the late 1980s, and this really cut short his run in 1992 with the WWF. He committed suicide in 1993 after two drug arrests. Fritz himself would die from cancer in 1997, and today Kevin Von Erich is the only living brother. Uh, what I found interesting um, in reading about these guys, uh, Carrie especially, was you just mentioned that he was in a motorcycle accident and lost his foot. He didn't tell anybody, and so he continued to wrestle for several years after that. With and a prosthetic, it, yes. Right, he, he had a prosthetic foot, and nobody knew because he went as far as to shower with his boots on. Yeah, the first the first anybody knew was in a WWF match where he basically had his boot pulled off, and they could see his his stumped leg. Essentially, yeah, you, you can't write television like that. I think that's what's amazing about these guys is that these are truly tough performers. And as much as it's a show, these are huge, super tough guys. And, and but that is their their downfall for the Von Erics, at least, is that they were built up as these God fearing, all American, good boy uh, superheroes. And yet by the late 1980s as the, the the deaths were mounting and the arrests and and the, they couldn't cover up uh, the failings of these boys and whether it was the pressure of being the stars or it was the uh, just their nature it was very sad that that's what really drove people into not wanting to support Texas wrestling Dallas wrestling anymore and though there have been several attempts to revive the various Texas territories, um, no major promotions have succeeded or been able to compete with the WWE. There are a number of small independent promotions which operate throughout the state. All of the large cities have become major stops, though, for the WWE since 1990. Several major pay-per-views have come from Dallas, San Antonio, and Houston, which also hosted WrestleMania 17 and 25. It is considered only a matter of time before the Cowboy Stadium hosts a WrestleMania. Even though Texas has no major promotions, many people in Texas and around the country continue to have fond memory of Texas wrestling and its stars, as Scott's co-workers can attest to that. Uh, these stars really do embody the unique character of Texas, and the sheer number of major stars that have come from Texas is really incredible. I mean, some of the major stars that we didn't talk about uh, included Dick Murdoch, the million-dollar man Ted DiBiase, Bruiser Brody, Stan Hansen, Polish power Ivan Putski, the American Dream Dusty Rhodes, Big Cat Ernie Ladd, the Heartbreak Kid Shawn Michaels, and current WWE legend The Undertaker, and the biggest money-making star in wrestling history, and the last 
big star produced by the Dallas Territory, Stone Cold Steve Austin. These Texas wrestlers embody what is great about Texas. You have these wild and wooly tough guys like Wild Bull Curry and Terry Funk, Bruiser Brody, and then you have the tough down-home heroes such as the Von Erichs, Dusty Rhodes, and Steve Austin. And with these, we see analogs between their real-life, outsized historical characters such as Sam Bass, John Wesley Harden, Davy Crockett, and Jim Bowie. If you'd like to know more about the history of Texas wrestling, you may want to check out Terry Funk's excellent autobiography, or the Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame books by wrestling historians Greg Oliver and Steve Johnson. There's also some really good websites out there, such as kfabememories.com. Also, there are two really excellent documentaries, Heroes of World Class and The Triumph and Tragedy of World Class Championship Wrestling. I, for one, would love to see Jim Bowie and Davy Crockett face off in the squared circle. I'd love to see Stone Cold Steve Austin open up a can of whoop-ass on Jim Bowie, because he could do it. Jim Bowie would bring a knife. Jim Bowie would bring a knife. We're going to talk about Jim Bowie in a future episode. You realize he was shot like 22 times and had a sword sticking out of him and still won the knife fight on the sandbar. Yeah, but could he handle Terry Funk's flaming branding iron? Or the Von Erich claw. That wraps things up for today. You can find notes and links from today's show at brainstaple.com. We'd love to hear from you, so please follow the show on Twitter at Texas Podcast or go to brainstaple.com and leave us some feedback. Be sure to indicate whether it's okay for us to mention you on the show. You can follow us individually, too. I'm on Twitter at Mr. Java. I'm at Max Sean with two N's. I'm Scotticus on Twitter. If you like the show, please tell your friends, leave a review on iTunes, like us on Facebook. It all really helps us out. We hope you join us next time, and remember that even if you aren't from Texas, Texas wants you anyway. <laughs>